Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. So we're headed into the month of August, and it's a time when some producers are starting to think about fall grazing and fall and winter supplements. And this week I'm focused on managing a forage resource that's very commonplace in Oklahoma, Bermuda grass, and its value as both a supplement and grazing resource. My guest this week is Mr. Brian Pugh, our Northeast area agronomist. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dana. Yeah. First time on the podcast, right? Yeah. First time. I'm excited. Since it's, we're recording this a little early, but it will go out around a little bit before August 1st. It's a great time to discuss Bermuda grass management and, and maybe people think, well, that's strange. You should have talked about that earlier in the season, but we're focused on a, a specific type of Bermuda grass management. Before we dive into that, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in extension and, and how you came into your position? Okay. Well, I'm, uh, again, I'm Brian Pugh. I grew up on a small cow-calf operation. We raised uh, purebred Simmental cattle and later on converted into Sim Angus genetics. And also we raised commercial cattle, ran some stalker cattle back in the day. I uh, got my bachelor's in animal science uh, with a focus in nutrition at the University of Arkansas and my master's in agronomy. Had intentions to go on for a PhD uh, in ruminant nutrition, but was, uh, I guess, convinced to go ahead and join the extension team here at Oklahoma State. And uh, that has kind of been a family alma mater for quite some time. So I did that back in 2004 as a county extension educator for about seven and a half, eight years. And then I took the job as the uh, area extension agronomist for Eastern Oklahoma, Northeast Oklahoma, actually, but I've served as the Eastern Oklahoma agronomist for about nine of those 10 years that I've been here. So it's been really enjoyable getting to work with producers on something that, that I love a lot. And that's, you know, helping combine the management of cattle operations with the management of those stands of forages out there. Well, and that, those strengths work really well in Northeast and Eastern Oklahoma because the forage management, uh, lots more forages over there than, you know, uh, cultivated crops and that sort Absolutely. of Absolutely. And I didn't realize that you had family, like it was a family kind of tradition to be an extension. I didn't know that. I did. Yeah. My, my dad was an extension agent for about six years before uh, becoming a feed sales manager for Farmland Purina Feeds. And then my mom was actually an extension agent for 33 years and retired from that. So, yeah, I guess I'm a legacy when it comes to uh, extension. Well, that's cool. That's awesome. Well, you are the guy to talk to when we talk about forage management, Bermuda grass and that sort of thing. So I thought it perfect to have you on. We're going to talk about Bermuda grass management to reduce winter hay feeding and beef cow operations. It's just something that maybe over here in Western Oklahoma, we don't talk as much about, but I think it still has value and we're, we'll address that. So we're into August guys and gals are thinking about booking supplement prices, thinking about their forages. Uh, and we know that those inputs are going to be high. We expect them to be, unfortunately. yeah, we expect them to just be ridiculously high. So Bermuda can play a role and we do it by stockpiling Bermuda grass. So 
give us kind of the brief overview, Brian, of what stockpiling is specifically for that forage resource. Okay. Well, I, I think probably one of the biggest misnomers I run into with Bermuda grass is, you know, a lot of producers think once we get into September, the growth of that forage is pretty much done for the year. So, you know, we may have producers that really intensively manage Bermuda from May until the end of August, 1st of September, and then they just allow that plant to do what it wants through the end of the year until frost hits. What we do know from research in Oklahoma, though, is that about 25% of potential production of Bermuda occurs after September 1. And that's what we're really wanting to focus on here is how can we stockpile that Bermuda grass after September 1, capture that growth before frost, and then essentially create a standing hay crop that the frost kills, locks the nutrients in the stem, and then we allow the cow to go back out and harvest that forage. And, you know, again, sometimes producers will say, well, I've had, you know, Bermuda that I grew in June and July and August. I kept cows off of it in the summer. I turned cows back on it in the fall and they just didn't do very well on it. And that's not what we're talking about. That's summer grown Bermuda. We are very intentionally, intensively and intentionally managing this Bermuda after September 1. So as you said, in August, the goal would be to get this pasture, Bermuda grass pasture short, get it down to two to three inches so we can put some fertility down on it and stimulate young, high quality vegetative growth after the rains show up there, usually around the first of September. We, we've got to graze it down, whether you graze it, bale it, whatever you want to do, but you got to get that Absolutely. Pasture. Okay. And grazing is my preference, but yes. yeah, this works really well on hay meadows too. I have a lot of producers that will use a summer hay meadow as a winter stockpile okay. field. So when you talk about fertility, what are we kind of, what are we thinking? You know, there's always rules of thumb. So we're going to talk rules of thumb here today. And typically what we would recommend you do is put 50 pounds of actual nitrogen uh, that could be put down as urea, ammonium nitrate. We could stream on UAN if you wanted to do that. Uh, but again, 50 pounds of actual nitrogen somewhere around the first week of September through about the 15th of September is as late as we would like to see you go. And try to be ahead of a rain. If you can see some rain coming in the forecast, try to have that down ahead of time. But I tend to always err on the side that if I'm still not seeing rains coming, I'm going to go ahead and try to get that fertility down somewhere by September 15th, because we can get these pop-up showers that show up too and kind of surprise us. So what about a little earlier, Brian? What if it just works out that it would be work for me to maybe graze it off by August 1st and fertilize a little early? Is that kind of overkill? Or no. does that work? Or I'm just sitting here thinking about that. No, it's not. And actually, we've got some replicated trials we've been working on in counties, multiple counties across eastern Oklahoma, where we're looking at stockpiling earlier. And part of the stockpiling process is understanding that a warm season perennial forage such as Bermuda is going to be at a quality high enough to meet a dry cow's requirements at about six to eight weeks of age. And after that age, it starts to drop below a cow's requirements. So of course, we're going to have to start supplementing that forage. 
And that's the beauty of, of fertilizing around September 1st is typically when frost kills that plant, we're right there at the level that we're meeting a, a dry cow's requirements, 8% protein or above, 53% TDN or above. What we're working on now, though, and I've even used this on my own place, is maybe going in around August 15th, if we see rains coming, put the fertility down a little bit ahead of when we normally would. And what we tend to see is we get better yields in the fall because we have more good grow growing days that that plant can actually take use of that nitrogen, make use of it, and produce additional tonnage. But on the other hand, we do tend to see that protein and energy will be slightly lower. So it may require a little bit of supplement at that point. And what I tend to call that is a hay replacement strategy. So if you don't have a lot of hay on hand or if hay's gonna be expensive, maybe more expensive than a couple pounds of what a supplement would be, that would be a good strategy is to try to catch an August rain and actually make a little more tonnage per acre, which allows that to graze a cow further into winter. So if we're doing the September kind of, let's say August mm -hmm. versus the September, you're really, the September works best because you're timing it just before frost. So you're getting to that, yes. you know, high quality forage um, just before frost. Now, if you're a little earlier then you're, you know, your timing is a little bit off, but it can work. That More way. forage, lower quality, probably going to require supplement fertilizing in September, or maybe the rain show up in September we're going to have less forage, which is less grazing days per acre, but we're going to have higher quality. So you're probably not going to need to supplement a cow on that. Okay. And again, that's just what mother nature deals us. Every right. year is a little different. Some years we may go a month later than normal before we hit killing frost. So again, our growth will be higher, but our quality will be lower. And there's no way to really predict that. We're just trying to, to get as close as we can with a rule of thumb. So as we extension agents always say, it depends, right? It does. It does depend. <laughs> you know, we didn't talk about this, but if you're doing kind of that September scenario, really, we're going to defer grazing until November 1st, -ish, like late October, November, right? Yes. Okay. And, and I get questions on that a lot. I, I often say November 1st is when I like to start grazing a cow. And let me back up here one step. Typically, what we also recommend is that you stockpile one acre per cow. What we know from a lot of research is that's going to give you about 45 to 60 days of grazing at one cow per acre. So again, that would be our recommendation is to stockpile at that level. It gives you kind of some planning there. So you don't have to do, maybe you don't want to do all your acres and, and you're going to allot, you know, a certain area. So that's a really good point. Absolutely. So again, if I've got 50 cows, I'm going to be looking for 50 acres that I could stockpile that Bermuda on. Okay. 60 days of grazing is what we say with that amount. And, and, and that's because you've allotted that, but also because forage quality kind of decreases with weathering and, and that sort of thing. Is that right? It does. Yeah. It, it tends to start going down. Uh, the more moisture that we get there in the fall, uh, the faster that leaf is going to degrade. And the way to think about it, that leaf is essentially rotting off the plant and it's falling to the ground. And that's where uh, most of the nutrients are in that stockpile forage. It's not in the stem itself. So yeah, if we get really wet falls and winters, we may only be able to graze through Christmas first of the year. I've seen on fairly dry falls like we had last year, 
producers could graze all the way to the end of January. And we've been very successful at Perkins being able to do that when we get a dry fall because that leaf will stay on that plant for much longer. And again, backing up to that November 1st start date, you know, I, I get asked a lot of times, is that a hard and fast rule? Absolutely not. What I try to tell people is when you're out of other forage, when you're out of your summer pasture, maybe that's October 20th, go ahead and turn the cows into this stockpile Bermuda grass and begin grazing it. Use the forage when you need it. But yes, ideally, I would want to set it up in a system to where I start grazing it around November 1st to 15th, and I try to be done around January 1 to January 15th. Okay. So it it really does replace a lot of the nutrients you would need to supplement those cows during that time. I mean, here we say- I mean, Bermuda grass after frost goes down to five to 7% protein. You know, the TDN doesn't drop as quickly. And so you just mentioned a dry cow's requirements are right at 8% protein, 53% TDN. So Mm -hmm. we're already needing to supplement during that time where this could replace that. So let's, let's talk about how that reduces the feed costs on our, on our beef operation. And I think where we should start is just talk about hay feeding and how that's increased over Uh the years. I, I saw a slide in one of your presentations that talked about since the round baler was invented or created that there's been a little change in hay use. Yes. Well, my, my granddad was a custom hay baler, and fortunately, I was young enough, I didn't get to haul a lot of square hay. He had already got into round bales, but my cousins sure hauled a lot of square hay. But I always thought it was unique that he fed nothing but square hay to his cows and sold round bales to everyone else. And I didn't understand until I got older that he was actually just being very conservative with the hay that he had and produced for his own cow herd. But yeah, what we do see is that the amount of hay produced per cow in the state of Oklahoma has basically tripled since the early 1970s. And, you know, some people will say, well, we've got bigger cows and yeah, we do have slightly bigger cows than we used to, but that doesn't account for three times the amount of hay. Really what that's accounting for is the fact that it's very easy for us to bell around bell of hay and it's much easier for us to feed that round bell of hay and possibly feed it without protection, without hay rings. And that way we get a lot of waste from the cows. So again, hay is still extremely valuable. We just don't treat it as so anymore. And I think that's the beauty of the stockpile forage system is we're taking all the labor out that we would have in a hay crop and we're making the cow do the work in harvesting her own forage. I read an article a couple years ago that talked about hay feeding and it said, when you bale the hay, you're putting your, it's like putting your money in the slot machine. So you're, you're swathing it and then you lose a little bit and then Uh you're bailing it and you're putting your money in the slot machine. And then you're, you're letting it sit there for a while, maybe nine months or six, six to nine months, a year, and putting some more money out because you're losing a little bit more. And so it, it can be pretty inefficient. And so I just love stockpiling so that we're having the cows do the work because I think that's important. I just think it's a a more efficient way to use forage. I mean, cows are our grazers, you know, which shouldn't always be from a baler. I mean, that's what they were made to do. And, you know, I always say it's much more efficient uh, to treat her as a four-wheel drive combine with a six-inch header 
she can go out there and harvest it all day long. She's already costing us money anyway, just to run. Uh, but we can help recoup some of that if we can save money by making her harvest that forage. Right. So before we started recording, we talked a little bit about what we're replacing as far as costs. Mm-hmm. And you had some good numbers that you brought up. I had some numbers too that weren't exactly the same, but I always tend to go on that lower end. So if you get 45 days of, of grazing, you're replacing both hay use and in some situations, supplement use too. Typically, um, yes. Could be upwards of replacing two bucks a day for a cow. Now you are a little bit more strategic and specific on your prices, but you know, if you're, if the cow is grazing and you're not having to provide both hay and supplement, that's significant. So do you have some numbers to share with us, Brian? Yeah. You know, I think as fertilizer costs have just skyrocketed this year, got pretty astronomical on us. You know, it's, it's our first reaction as, as a human to think there's no way I can afford that. And even when let's say urea is $500 a ton, we look at that and we think, well, feed is $300 a ton, whatever feed you want to term that as. Mm-hmm. Fertilizer is $500 a ton. How can I f- afford to buy $500 a ton fertilizer? The problem is we have to really sit down with a pencil and figure out what does that $500 worth of fertilizer mean? So the number I threw out to you earlier was $1,000 urea. You know, so even at $1,000 per ton urea, that that scares a lot of us off, but it takes about 50 pounds of nitrogen to make an extra ton of forage in the fall. We know that from hundreds of trials. And 50 pounds of nitrogen at $1,000 per ton urea would be about $55. And again, assuming we could get 60 days of grazing on your average quality soil, not a rocky soil, not a shallow soil, but just a good soil, we should be able to get 60 days of grazing with some grazing management. That's less than a dollar per day. And again, what I was saying earlier is that if we feed a cow $35 bell of hay, that's an 1,100 pound four to six bell of hay, that's 96 cents per cow per day to get 30 pounds of dry matter in her. So again, even at $1,000 per ton on urea, that is equivalent to about a 36 or $37 per bell of hay. And, and, we did talk about earlier, it's thinking per bale versus per ton. Uh-huh. We have a little bit difference there. My quick uh, chicken scratch at $2 per day cost per cow um, replacement. I mean, it's it's a lot cheaper to let her do the work with this management system, even with that high cost of fertilizer. Sure. And I mean, if we went a little further with your calculation, we're talking, you know, $120 in hay costs over two months. And then if we looked at just your run of, run of the mill supplement, let's say maybe that hay didn't meet a cow's requirement. Right. We're talking probably around 50 cents per cow per day in supplementation costs. So, mm-hmm. you know, you add that up over another 60 days and that's 30 additional dollars. We're at $150 just to hay and supplement that cow. And it would have cost us $55 to put the fertilizer down, grow the forage and let her harvest it. So again, it's quite quite a significant savings in most years. Okay, so we've talked about kind of these savings and you've applied this, you've really put this to work. This isn't just something we're, you know, pushing our pencil on the paper and saying it'll work. You've done this across a few research stations in Oklahoma. So do you wanna 
tell us a little bit about some of those, those research trials? Sure. Yeah, we've got two research stations, one at Perkins, one at Valiant, where uh, we've implemented these strategies and we've tried to keep very good track of exactly how much production we're getting, what the quality of the forage is. The neat thing about these herds is that we're actually weighing the cows as they go on the stockpile forage and we're weighing them as they come off to track what their body condition change is, to track their body weight change. Because to me, that's going to be an indicator of, you know, are we losing weight? Because everybody thinks, man, if I put these cows on this brown, dried out Bermuda grass, yeah, I can run them on it, but they may lose 200 pounds a cow and I won't be able to rebreed effectively. And you've seen the data. Um, what we've been able to show is that, yeah, we don't gain a lot of weight on stockpile Bermuda, but we have main, statistically maintained weight on those cow herds every year that we've done it. And again, what we also saw on the rebreeding success is because of good forage management and not losing weight with those cows, we were able to actually increase some of our breeding, uh, some of our breeding successes. That's not due to the stockpile Bermuda. That's again, just due to good forage management, keeping the cows in good body condition all the way through the year. So what I like to tell people, it's not really gonna help you gain a lot of weight on the cows, but they're not gonna lose much weight on it either. And we've got producers, I've actually got a producer with over 1,200 head of cows that stockpiles Bermuda every year. He gets about two months of grazing out of it, saves a lot of money. You know, I've done this on my own operation for over 15 years now. Uh, at one point, we had over 200 cows, and, and it definitely works. It definitely saves you a lot of money. Now, in some of those, are they all continuous grazing, or are you doing some sort of different sort oh, of Oh, that's a good rotation? question. <laughs> I, I had to throw that in there. I do move cows. Now, like at Cimarron, uh, at Perkins, at the Cimarron Research Station, we move the fence about every three to four days is where we moved a single polywire electrified fence to kind of limit the access that the cows had to the stockpile forage. We're trying to keep them from trampling on a lot of that, defecating on some of it. Uh, so again, we moved every three days. Down at Valiant, at our station down there on the Red River, the first year we moved a fence every day. We actually gave the cows a strip every day. We got very good forage utilization. The cows did well on that. On my own personal operation, I tend to move the fence every weekend. I'm shooting for about a seven-day allotment of forage because, you know, I'm doing this during the week. I've right. got a job. <laughs> I'm not getting in until late at night. So, yeah. again, I try to set up for about a seven-day uh, fence movement. And you can still see advantages from even moving the fence once a week on forage utilization. And actually, I, I sent you some data before I know you looked at it there from Perkins. But in the first year, we were able to pay for an electric solar electric fence charger and the entire electrified system just from moving that fence on a 40 cow herd for about 55 days. We were able to pay for that entire fencing system and make about 200 extra dollars in saved hay and saved supplement. Mm -hmm. So again, it is a system that pays for you if you're willing to move that fence. Yeah. Like a lot of our, the things that we talk about management tactics, um, it does take a little bit extra effort um, mm -hmm. to do that. Um, and I know at the, the sonic trap, isn't that what you guys call it? Yes. Out at, out at yep. Perkins, it's just kind of a big, uh, fan is kind of how you move it. And here I am on the video 
you know, fanning out my arm here, but no, you got listeners can't see it, but you know, you're just moving it a little bit every day uh, or every, every so many days, just so that they're utilizing that forage. They're eating it down. I mean, it's significant, yes. um, but they're not wasting as much. That's a good way to set up a paddock is to put your charger in one location on a corner, start on the end that has the water. And then we just fan that fence around. Uh, so we're only moving one end of that fence. The other end staying at the charger the entire period that the cows are in there. And that fence there, that runs about a quarter of a mile across there. We could move that fence in about 11 to 13 minutes with one person. So you, it sounds like it takes a lot of labor, but you have to think, you know, how much time does it take you to go out there and start that feed truck and get a few bales of hay and put the supplement in the trough? Uh, it's going to take you more time than that over a 60-day period feeding and haying every day than what it does to move that fence once every five days or once a week. Don't forget the fuel cost. Absolutely. Oh That's going gosh. up too. I don't know if you yeah. noticed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> holy cow. It's been, uh, it's pretty bad. I stuck that in there as far as the different types of, you know, stocking can people do it with just continuous stocking? Is stockpiling still going to work with kind of a continuous grazing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And we actually did that at Perkins as well. We used a group that we continuously stocked to be able to compare to uh, the rotational stocking, the strip grazing. And yes, it, it works very well. What you need to understand is the biggest difference with continuous grazing is that the cows are going to eat the choicest forage in the first week that they're in there. Mm -hmm. And every week that goes by, the cows are eating lower and lower quality forage. That differs with what we're doing on a strip grazing setup because, for instance, with a three-day, the cows eat really good quality forage the first day. It tends to go down to day three, and then we pick back up to good quality forage as we move the fence. We don't get that luxury quite as much with a continuous graze system. So you really have to watch those cows as we get into latter part of December on a continuous graze stockpile Bermuda scenario. Mm -hmm. Good so, question. Yeah, just wanted to make sure since I'd kind of thrown that in there. So I'm based out of Enid. I cover... Northwest Oklahoma, the least amount of rainfall usually of, mm -hmm. of the state. So there might be a lot of naysayers out there saying, this is ridiculous. This won't work out here. We don't have enough rainfall. What's your counter to that, Brian? Well, I would say there's a lot of truth to the rainfall argument. So, you know, we will not get forage production of any kind at any point in the year without rainfall. So it all hinges on that. Uh, I always go back to an old Texas study that was done, I believe, back in the 50s, and they showed on Bermuda grass, if we were not fertilizing, it took about 20 inches of rainfall to make a ton of production with no fertility. If we were willing to fertilize that Bermuda the way we're supposed to, according to a soil test, it only took about four inches of rainfall to make a ton of production. So as agronomists, we always talk about, you know, nutrients make plants more water use efficient. We can make better use of converting falling rain into usable forage yield. And that's a very important concept to understand because what we do see, even in very low rain environments, low rain falls here in eastern Oklahoma on trials and central Oklahoma, we can still make a ton of forage if we get three to four inches of rain during that growing period. 
what do you say when, after you put down your fertilizer, you need about a half of an inch of rain to incorporate it? Is that kind of your rule of thumb? Absolutely. Yeah. It takes about a half inch of rain to get those nutrients down into the root zone. And that helps us too. If we're using a product like urea, that helps us limit the amount of ammonia volatilization that we might get. So yeah, half inch of rain is what I really want to be getting it into the plant, start using it. So we went on the Mesnet and, and we pulled a few kind of values. And I think, I think we could just say last fall, 2021, mm-hmm. it was pretty dry across the state in general. Would you say I, that, Ryan? I would say that from my standpoint, uh, it was one of the driest Septembers on record. September is probably our most, most rainfall secure month in eastern Oklahoma. We always get those county fair rains but it was one of the driest Septembers on record. So it was kind of a worst case scenario for stockpiling forage. Okay. Yeah. For Eastern Oklahoma. So I saw Mm -hmm. August, I guess I pulled August rainfall um, for some of these, but September rainfall for Buffalo, Oklahoma, which is in Harper County, right next to the panhandle, um, September through October, middle of October, 2.82 inches last year. So even really dry, uh, Weatherford, which is kind of West central two inches, Altus, even Altus, it gets heat, you know, really, they've been really hot these last couple of days, just over two inches um, during that period. So, you know, just an example of, we do get some rain typically historically. Uh I mean, I went back five or six years in August, we've had some rain too. So it gets to be pretty hot and dry here in, in Western Oklahoma. The evaporative, evaporative kind of situation yeah. is pretty significant because of the hot, dry wind, but we do get that rainfall that could incorporate that fertility. Yeah. And I would say, you know, evaporation is going to impact Western Oklahoma more than it does us in Eastern Oklahoma because of the humidity differences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a tenth of an inch of rainfall in western Oklahoma on a hundred degree day where the humidity is very low, that doesn't last very long. That no. doesn't do us a lot of good. No. But looking through some of that data that you had, what you see is there's some fairly significant rainfalls that occurred at every one of those stations in August. And there was also some significant rainfalls in September through mid-October. Yeah. So I think in certain situations, if you've got that forage resource, you can maybe take advantage of it. It all depends on mother nature, right? There's a lot of risks in agriculture though. I've come to (laughs) realize. So, uh, what we can do, we do what we can do. And, and this is, this is a good technique to try to reduce some of those costs. Now we talked just about Bermuda, but briefly, are there other forages we can use this on? There is, uh, you know, there's been quite a bit of work done in the Southeast Gulf states. They use it on bahia grass, and I know we don't have any bahia out in western Oklahoma, but it's fairly prevalent in Southeast Oklahoma. There's producers that use that. I've actually had producers that have used it very successfully on old world blue stem, and there's a lot of old world blue stem in western Oklahoma. Right. So again, it's also going to be responsive to nitrogen inputs. It's going to follow similar trends that Bermuda does. If we get it short and in a vegetative state, it's much higher quality. And it frosts out at about the same time as Bermuda. So it can be treated as a stockpile crop as well. Yeah. Old world blue stem is cows usually don't like to eat that mature at all. So you might as well, That's right. <laughs> might as well do something with it. It is a challenging 
forage to handle, but, um, that, that is a really interesting area that I hope we can kind of address going forward. Cause I think mm-hmm. some people can utilize that. I know you've probably worked with some producers and I have too, from that central Oklahoma and a little further West of there. I did serve as the agronomist for Western Oklahoma for a year and a half or so. Yeah. So, you were like the main man all the way across the state. I don't know if you'd call me the main man, but I was the only man. So of course I was asked to fill in there, but I actually had quite a few producers that, you know, would get the old world blue stem short there at the first of September and, and didn't intentionally fertilize it in the fall, but just allowed that fresh regrowth to come back. And they were very successful as well in stockpiling and running those cows on that early winter. So again, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities for those producers that are willing to put some fertility, put some nitrogen on it in the fall to increase that yield and reduce the amount of acreage you would need on a per cow basis. Well, this has just been so interesting, Brian. Thanks so much for all the numbers. I don't know if listeners know I'm not as good with all the, you know, math and numbers and definitely not nitrogen. (laughs) (laughs) So I appreciate you coming on and and talking about it. We'll probably come back maybe in a year and talk about maybe some of the stuff I've found out through some of these little demos we put out um, this fall. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me, Dana. So listeners, if you would like more information about stockpiling, it can be found in the show notes, but don't forget that your local county OSU extension office is the best place to go find out about forage management, uh, applying some of these management techniques specific to your area. Thank you so much for joining me today and have a wonderful week.